Hey, Tim, you're muted. There. Now, can you hear me? Try to be cute. Can you? Okay, good. Sorry about that. I thought I had unmuted. Um, so we're at the story of the golden calf. It's an extremely famous story. We are all pretty familiar with it. And actually, if you look through the narrative, the telling of the story is pretty straightforward. There's nothing really um, hard to, to figure out going on here. Um, so what I want to do this morning is we'll look at the story itself, and then we'll, we'll look at some of the application of it. Um, before we do that, let me open us in a word of prayer. Lord, would you be with us in the reading, the hearing, the preaching of your word? Lord, would you sink it deep into our hearts? And Lord, use it to draw us near to you. Have mercy on us. Um, we're separated. We're connected via technology. But Lord, we, um, we know that there is such a thing as a communion of the saints where we're together in a spiritual way as well. So be with us now. Join us together. And we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. So um, like I said, this is kind of a familiar story, but it, it brings up a, an interesting point. The, the people in the Old Testament had uh, an advantage that we kind of lack. And, you know, I say advantage, but it's really a snare. See, the people in the Old Testament had idolatry. Um, what does that mean that that is some sort of advantage for them or that that was some benefit to them? Well, in those days, back in the Old Testament, if your heart wandered from God, it was blazingly obvious because there was a huge astro pole outside your house, or you were seen going up to the top of the mountain to worship a false god, or you erected a shrine to Baal, or you had little idols in your house. And so if somebody's heart wandered, you had this big red flag saying, hey, these folks have wandered away from the Lord. So in that way, it was an advantage because it just put it right up in your face. You couldn't miss it. You saw exactly what was going on when your heart had drifted from Yahweh. Um, but what's happened is since those days, people have gotten more sophisticated. And I don't mean sophisticated internally, that their hearts don't wander. I mean sophisticated externally. And so we don't necessarily have those idols so much anymore. Like consider by the time of Jesus, when Jesus came, um, the people didn't really have, we don't see too many idols in, in uh, the gospel narratives. But what had happened was the Pharisees and the scribes and, and the people had turned God into an idol. How does that happen? What does that mean? Well, what happened was they had turned this idea of God, they had distorted it and twisted who he would be to fit their narrative. And so when God himself shows up in the person of Jesus walking amongst them, they hate him, they try to shut him down, they reject his miracles, and they ultimately turn him over to the Romans for execution. So they didn't want the true and living God. They wanted the God of their, their own imagination. Um, so they, they had a form of religion, but denying its power, they rejected Jesus. And, you know, for us today, since the, the Enlightenment, we don't have those silly idols and that kind of stuff. We don't do those kinds of things. And so it's really hard for us sometimes to diagnose when our hearts have wandered from him. Because kind of like the, uh, the folks in, in uh, Jesus' day, um, we have a form of religion but we deny its power. We don't, we don't connect in with it. And so this story that we're going to look at this morning kind of helps us. It, it helps us understand um, how we can discern what's going on in our hearts. So what we'll do is we'll look at the story and then we'll pick it up and we'll, we'll address through the story a wandering heart, how to diagnose it, what triggers it, and how to avoid it. So this, this really is, we watch Israel wander from the Lord, and then we can use that as a way to, to uh, help us to avoid that 
in the end. So that's, that's where we're going to go with that. So what happens is uh, it starts with this startling narrative of what Israel did. Um, it just begins bland. The people saw that he was delayed and they said, make us a, a, a God, make us gods. Um, one of the things is the, the word for gods there, up, make us gods who, uh, who shall go before us. Uh, the word gods is Elohim. And we know that Elohim can be plural. The im sound at the end is a plural ending. Uh, so why is it most of the time we translate it as singular, uh, as uh, God? But here we would translate it as God's plural. Well, because we have two clues in the text. Um, the pronoun, um, these gods who will go before us, and the verb is, are both plural. So what, they're, what Israel is saying is they're looking for gods, plural, um, who they will say, these are the ones that let us up. It's, it's kind of a startling thing that they're, they're jumping on board already. Moses has only been up on the mountain 40 days. Um, so, you know, a couple of months, and they're ready to, to jump ship. Uh, so what they said is they said, these are the gods who, uh, who led us out of Egypt. They haven't cast off the idea that God has led them out of Egypt. They just can't get their head around the God who really is. And so they're going to make something else. Um, when they tell Aaron, make us gods, uh, did you notice that he makes one calf? So how is one calf their gods? And this is a little tricky. This is, this is a little hard to understand, but one of the concepts in the ancient Near East back then was that uh, often gods would appear over top of or ride on the back of uh, a bull or an ox. And so what they're doing possibly is saying the golden calf isn't necessarily the, the god. It is the place where God will meet us. This is the place where God will be with us. And doesn't that sound familiar? What are they learning about right now? What is Moses up on the mountain getting? He's up there and God is showing in this heavenly vision, this, this view of the tabernacle. And that's where God said he will be with his people. He will meet with his people in this tabernacle. And they're getting impatient waiting. So they build their own version of a tabernacle. Our gods will appear or be with us over top of these um, these uh, calves. That's nice, but one of the problems is they said, make us a God. They didn't say, make us a place for God or a tabernacle for God. So it's a little confusing, and it's probably because the theology of the day was a little confusing. They didn't necessarily have it all worked out. Um, but the, the, the point is, they made gods of gold, and so in some way, that calf represents God to them. And so the reason is they say, this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. He went up on the mountain. It's a pretty scary place. There's, there's thunder and, and, and fire and clouds, and he's disappeared, and we haven't seen him for months, so who knows? Maybe he's dead. Um, but they, they identify Moses as the man who brought us up. And then they turn and they, they make these gods, and they say, these gods will be the ones who brought us up. So I don't think that they're saying, Moses brought us up but then we'll attribute it to these false gods. I think what's going on is they're saying, we don't understand who God is, and so we're going to go with something that we're familiar with. We'll put him in a form that we can understand. He's these gods that ride on the back of these animals, and that's, the one that, that's a god that we can handle. Uh, he's the one that won't scare us. He won't terrify us. And so um, Aaron does it. He, he, takes their, um, he takes their earrings, and, you know, there's some, com some discussion about uh, was there enough earrings to build uh, a golden calf? Well, the thing didn't have to be huge. Um, it could be fairly small. 
it's not really super important anyway. The idea is they contributed, free will contributing to the building of this idol. And, and for some reason, Aaron goes with it. Aaron says, yeah, we'll do that. And so he builds them this idol. It says that he used a graving um, a tool. Uh, so what probably happened was he took the gold, melted it down, cast it in the clay or in the dirt that was available, and got the rough shape of the, the uh, calf, and then used a tool to shape it and clean it up and, and maybe engrave it with some fancy artwork to make it appealing. Um, and I just can't imagine what Aaron was thinking when he did it, because Moses doesn't tell us. He just says, there you go. That's what, I made it for you. Here's, here's the God. So the people say, these are the gods that took us out of Egypt. And then Aaron tries to redeem it. He tries to bring this thing back, and he says, tomorrow we shall proclaim a feast to Yahweh. Um, so he's hoping to draw them back and say, well, maybe through this we can draw them back to Yahweh, and, and maybe we can redeem this situation. Um, but then the next day they rose up, um, and they, they got up to eat, and they sat down to play is what it says. Um, the word for play there probably indicates more than just, you know, getting their, their Legos out and building things. It, it probably has a much more sensual meaning, which actually we'll see later on it did. It, it, there was a lot of um, not good things going on. So that's what Israel did. Um, so then the next thing that happens is Moses up on the mountain, God tells him what happened. Uh, Moses, God interrupts the discussion that they're having. And, uh, and he, he says, hey, this is what's going on. Um, he tells him to go down because the people that he brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Is God saying that he did not bring them up? He says, the people you brought up from Egypt, is he like disavowing the Exodus or something? Um, I don't think that's what, what God is doing by saying these people that you brought up. He's not saying, you know, kind of blame shifting. I think what he's doing is he's adopting the position of the people. The people have rejected Yahweh, and they say he's not the one who brought us up. Moses did it. So he's basically saying, look, you've rejected me, and so they think that you did this. So this people that you brought up from the land of Egypt, from their perspective, um, and so he, they, they've rejected him, they, not Moses. They're not throwing off Moses, and that's right like what happened when Israel called for King Saul many years later. Is God tells Samuel, they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. And so that's kind of what he's telling Moses is they, they're, they're, they think that you're the one who did it. Um, and so he, he tells him to go down and, um, and, and deal with this. And then in verse 9, it says again, and the Lord said to Moses. And notice there's no intervening discussion from Moses. Moses is still silent up to this point. So the fact that in verse 9 it says, and the Lord said to Moses again, probably means Moses was speechless. Um, he is, picture him, imagine his, his position. He's up on a mountain in the presence of God, being shown these glorious things. This is what the tabernacle is going to look like. This is how it's going to come together. This is what it's going to be like in the tabernacle. And he's just blown away by that, having this, this super rich spiritual moment, only to be interrupted and in saying, the people that you let out of Egypt have gone nuts. They have lost their minds in the camp. They're worshiping false gods. I don't know if I would be able to say anything. Um, Moses is just gobstopped. He, he doesn't have anything to say to them. And so then the Lord then says, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order to make a great nation out of you. So what God offers Moses here is, is look, 
I'm just going to eliminate these people. They, they have lost it. They've turned away so quickly. We'll just wipe them out and I'll start over with you and I will make a great nation out of you. You'll be the one because you're the only one faithful right now. So let's do that. Um, is that a real offer? Is that something that God really intends? Um, I'm not sure that that was exactly what he was going to do, but he mentions it. This is what could happen. My, my anger at them is so bad, I could wipe them out. Um, but what I think he's intending to do with this is I think he's intending to draw Moses into an intercessory position. He offers this, this terrible option. I could wipe out these people and just start with you. And, and he's asking Moses, intercede for these people. It's kind of like he, what he did when he met uh, Abraham. And he was going down to Sodom and Gomorrah to see how bad they actually were. And, and he, he does that. He says, shall I not tell Abraham what I'm about to do? And he explains it to him. And Abraham begins to intercede. And so I think that's what he's doing with Moses. He's drawing Moses into this intercessory position for them because they need somebody to intercede on their behalf. And so what happens is the, the Moses implored the Lord. He, he cried out to God. His concern, though, if you'll notice, he says, why should the Egyptians say what evil intent or with an evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and uh, consume them from the face of the earth? So Moses, is, his intercession is not, oh, Lord, they're not that bad. Give them, a, give them another chance. Um, I'm sure they'll be better next week. That's not the basis of his intercession. The basis of his intercession is, Lord, this will make you look bad before your enemies. It'll make it look like you couldn't deliver these people. Even, even because they're wicked, you couldn't deliver them from this. And so Moses' first primary concern is with God's glory, is with who God is. That is his intercession. Um, he doesn't start with the people. And I think that's an important lesson for us because if we don't start with something that is ultimately and eternally worthy and will never fail, we can wind up falling into Aaron's error. If our chief concern is, well, the people, what about the people, Lord? Then we can wind up being tempted to compromise or to um, try to, you know, pull an Aaron on them. Well, you know, yeah, that's, that's not what God had in mind. He said, don't do this, but let's try to redeem that and turn it back into something about God anyway. So we'll go with what you want, but we'll try to turn it around. Um, if we start with God, or people as ultimate, the most important thing, then we can get led astray. But Moses starts with, Lord, your name is important. And, and it almost sounds a little callous, doesn't it? Um, you don't really care about the people. You're only concerned about God. Well, that's not the dichotomy that we're offered. It's not either or. Uh, if we're concerned about God's glory, God's glory in this case is primarily shown through his people. So we will have concern for his people. We will be des desirous that his people not do what they're doing and that God have mercy on them. But we do that not because the people are ultimately okay. We do that ultimately because it shows God's great glory. That's able to bear the weight of it. And it, it will give us a good port in the storm to direct us to the right answer. Um, but if we start with the people are the ultimate, the people are the most important thing, we could wind up on, on rocky shores. And so it's really important to start with God's glory. Now, God's glory is not at odds with the people's benefit. Um, and that's where Moses goes is he says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore. So he brings up God's covenant with Abraham. 
not like, hey, you know, holding up a legal document saying, well, you said you can't, you can't go back on that. Um, it's not like he's trying to bribe God. What he's saying is, Lord, you promised through Abraham, his seed would be numerous as the earth and they would fill the, the lands and you would give them this promised land. And that's going to demonstrate your glory much more than if you'd wipe it out and start over again. That, that could show a bad thing. So he, he's interested in God's glory and the people definitely benefit. And, and that's the same thing for us. When Jesus went to the cross, he, he said he was coming into his glory. He would show his glory. Um, and it wasn't like he just kind of forgot about us. He did it in order to save us so that his glory would be magnified. So it's really important. I think the way Moses intercedes for us. And then um, as Moses talks, it says, and the Lord relented from the disaster he had spoken of bringing on his people. And, and here is the mystery of prayer. Um, did Moses change God's mind? Well, it sure sounds like it. That's what he says is, is the Lord relented. He listened to Moses and he relented. Um, it sure seems like he did. And yet, God is all-knowing. Um, he, he planned the beginning from the end, or the end from the beginning. He, he, he knew exactly what he was going to do. He bound himself in covenant to not do what he just threatened to do. Uh, so when we intercede in prayer, um, are we changing God or are we changing ourselves? Um, I'm not exactly sure. Um, I know that God says he doesn't change. He's not a, like a man. He, he never changes. And yet, this all-knowing, unchanging, eternal God demands our prayers. He wants us to pray. He, he invites, look what he did to draw Moses into intercession. Look what he did to draw Abraham into intercession. And so in some way, our prayers are what God desires. He affects things through our prayers. Um, now, does that change him? In one sense, no, it can't change him. He's unchangeable. He is perfect. Anything from perfect, any change off of perfect would be down. And so we, we can't inform of him of things he wasn't aware of. Uh, we can't tell him things that he's forgotten. He's all-knowing. He never forgets. And yet, he invites us into prayer. And, and what a mysterious and a confusing thing to pray to the omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing God and bring our, our needs to him as if he wasn't aware of them when he is. But he wants that. And so this is one of those cases where God is confusing. Um, he, he, he can really confuse us in being who he is. But what we want to do is make sure we're not doing what Israel did and say, well, we're going to make a God we can handle. We're going to make a God that we can understand and wrap our head around. And so we, we let him be mysterious. We let him do what he's commanded us to do. And if we understand it someday, that's wonderful. And if not, it's still a glorious thing, isn't it? The all-powerful God of the universe has said, you must pray to me. I want you to pray to me. Come to me with your prayers. And I'm not going to pretend to hear them or just act like there's something. I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to hear you. Um, it's, it's a glorious thing and a confusing thing. And that's fine because that's what God has told us. So that's the intercession. God relents. He, he says he won't do what he had threatened to do. And so now Moses responds. Moses turned and went down from the mountain. And he's got the two tablets in his hand. The tablets of the testimony is what the, the uh, Bible says. Um, we always think of that as the Ten Commandments. And that's because in Deuteronomy 4.13, it says they had the Ten Commandments on them. He, he had written them on there. But the words that are used to describe it throughout the Bible are not always the tablets with the two Ten Commandments. It's the tablets of the testimony. 
not the law, not the, the strictures, not the rules that you got to follow, but the testimony. Um, they're, they're, they're explaining something, they're showing something. And, you know, when Hollywood got um, um, Charlton Heston to come down the mountain with the, the Moses get up on, he held the two tablets and they're only written on the front because you can't film both sides. But what the Bible says is the tablets were written on both sides, front and back, and they were work of God. So they probably weren't these big, beautiful, you know, um, immaculate stones. It might've been smaller stones that were carved, but the really wild thing is that God engraved them himself. Um, this is God actually writing out the scriptures. He, he wrote them by hand on those stones and he gave them to Moses. Um, I think that's just a marvelous thing because most of the time God doesn't write that way. He writes through human beings, but this time he wrote them on stone. And so as they go down the mountain, it might, it probably was a long journey down. I mean, Israel is, is a giant camp. It's millions of people spread out across the plain at the foot of the mountain. It probably took them a long time to get down there. But as they're nearing the camp, as they're drawing close, Joshua hears the sound in the camp and he says, it's the sound of war. And then Moses answers, I don't know if your Bible has this written this way, but Moses answers a little bit of a poem. He says, it's not the noise of war that's in the camp, and it's, it's, it's not the sound of victory or the sound of defeat. So he puts up the two. Well, if it's war, then either they won or they didn't. But that's not what I hear. Um, what I hear is I hear them singing. I hear them, the, the sound of a party is going on. They're having a great time down there. And so Moses understands exactly what's going on because God's told him. And now as he draws close, he hears the sound. He begins to pick up the party vibe that's going on. And it says when he got close, he saw the calf. He saw the calf and the people dancing around it. And Moses' anger burned hot. So God's anger was, was burning hot and threatened to destroy them. Moses gets down there and now he's mad. And so what he does is he takes the calf. He had burned it with fire grounded into a powder, scattered it on the water, and made them drink it. Um, the calf was made out of gold. What happens when you burn gold? It melts into slag. So he probably, there's a possibility that there was a wooden structure that the, the calf was laid over. That's why it said that Aaron um, used a, 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 a graving tool to do it. So he might have overlaid it, and what was burned was the wooden structure. We don't know, but whatever it was, whatever was left after the burning, it was ground up and Moses scattered it on the water. Um, that's an odd punishment, isn't it? I, I think what he's doing by scattering it on the water and then forcing the people to drink is he's calling them back to their God. Um, do you remember how important water has been through this exodus so far? The, the beginning, the first plague was turning the Nile into blood. Water was affected. And then when they're finally delivered from Egypt, they pass through the Red Sea and the water crashes in and destroys their enemies. And then they get to Elam and there's no water, it's, it's bitter. And so he throws a stick in and turns the water sweet. And then they get a little further and there's no water at all. And so he strikes a rock and water comes out. So water has been a very important part of this narrative. So I think the throwing of the ashes and this, the, the gunk that came out from this on the water and saying, now drink that is he's, he's reminding them what you made is of human hands and our God is beyond that. So he's, he's forcing them to go back to who God is. So then Moses turns to Aaron and we get the lamest excuse in the entire Bible. I don't think there's any other excuse I can think of that is this bad. Moses said, what did the people do to you that you brought this great sin on them? And Aaron apologized. Don't, don't be mad. Um, they said, make us gods who will go before us. 
uh, because they didn't know what happened to you. And, and so what I did is I said, give me your gold. And I threw it in the fire and out came this lamb, this, this calf. It just popped right out. <laughs> the lamest excuse ever. What happened to the graving tool that you had, Aaron? Um, he, he's, he's trying to, to, I don't know what he's trying to do. He's trying to find some middle ground or something. He, he says, you know, in the end, he says, you know these people that they're set on evil. So what he's saying is, is I did the best I could with a really stubborn people, Moses. Um, I think that indicates Aaron is the older brother between Aaron and Moses, and yet Moses is the one that God chose to lead. Um, Aaron might not have been an effective leader. He was a pretty good speaker, but he might not have been as effective a leader as Moses was. And so Moses gets chosen and Aaron is not uh, because Aaron capitulated to the people when they made their, their startling demand. So then um, what comes next is a, a judgment on those who are unrepentant. Um, Moses says, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And so the tribe of Levi come and they gather around him. That's Moses' tribe. But what they are doing is they're saying they're not with the people in going after this false god. They're with Yahweh. And so Moses' uh, command is strap the sword onto your side. They would strap the sword onto their left hand so they could draw it with their right hand and be ready to fight. And so he says, strap on your sword and go through the camp and kill your brother, your companion, and your neighbor. So what he's saying is kill your family, your extended family, and whole, anybody in the nation. And it sounds like they should go through and wipe everybody out. And now we're down to the tribe of Levi because that's the only one. But that wasn't, obviously wasn't what Moses meant because 3,000 people died that day. It says 3,000 men died that day. So what I think happened is, is there are people who are refusing to submit to Moses at this point. They're not repenting. They're continuing the party. They're continuing the idolatry or whatever. And Levi goes through and strikes them. Remember Levi from Genesis? Uh, Genesis 34, Levi and Simeon went through Shechem and killed all the men. Um, and Jacob is really upset with him. He said, you've brought disgrace on me. You've, you, you've got me in trouble. Now they're going to come and take me out. So then at the very end of Jacob's life in, in Genesis 49, when he's pronouncing the blessings on the people, he remembers um, Levi and Simeon's violence. And so it comes back. Here's a case where that violence was used um, in a, a, an appropriate way in, in bringing judgment on those who had turned against God. And so at the end, he says, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord. It begins to hint at their priesthood. Um, but their priesthood is rooted in this violence. It's, it's kind of startling. Um, but this is what is going to happen is they will be now set aside to the Lord to be his priests. So um, that's the judgment that falls on them. The next day, um, Moses says, you've sinned, and I'm going to go up and speak to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Perhaps I can do something about this. Um, and so Moses returns to the Lord. It's a real quick trip up the mountain. We don't get any details. And he addresses God. He says, alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. Um, that's that problem of gods of gold with the singular calf. And so how does that fit together? Probably more theology than we need to know. Um, and so Moses begins to intercede. This is his intercession. But now if you will forgive their sin, and um, in the ESV, there's, there's a, a M dash there. There's a hyphen. He kind of stops his sentence. He doesn't continue. And then he picks it up. He says, but if not, please blot me out of the book. 
what he's saying, he's so identified with the people who he was so mad at that he made them drink bitter or contaminated water and then had people execute them. He still identified with them and he says, if you won't have mercy on them, then blot me out too. I, I don't want to remain in the land if, if that's what it means. And so God tells Moses, whoever sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But go, lead the people to the place about which I've spoken to you. My angel will go before you. The intercession worked. This is exactly what God had promised is he was going to go before them. And, and he's saying, we're going to continue on with the plan. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sins upon them. Not sure exactly what that means. Um, we can think eschatologically and say in the day of judgment, he will do that. And that's true. It, it's probably hinting at what is coming. So when later on they draw close to the promised land and the people say, oh, we can't go in. They're too big. Um, he, he says, well, then you're all going to die in the desert and your children will go in. That may be what he's referring to as the, the day of his visit, is that day of reckoning when it comes up again, he's going to bring this upon them because this generation won't go into the promised land. Um, and that's exactly the context. Lead the people to the place about which I've spoken to you, um, but they're not going to actually go in because in that day, I'm going to visit my judgment upon them. Um, and so then it ends with the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf. And the one uh, that made the calf, the one that Aaron made. So not, not only do they get poisoned or contaminated water, not only do 3,000 of them die by a sword, but now a plague comes into the camp. And so God is, is showing his anger with them. That's kind of the end of the story. It's the end of the chapter. But um, the next chapter kind of continues on with some of that story. Now, what are we supposed to do with this? How does this apply to us? Well, you don't have to look too hard or too far uh, because Paul makes the application for us right in 1 Corinthians 10. Um, in, starting in verse 6, he says, Now these things took place as an example for us. This is for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. He, Paul then says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. So he's speaking of the 23,000. He's speaking of later on um, when um, Balaam tempts them to, to sleep with the Moabites. But the first part of that, he says, don't be idolaters. And he's talking to Christians. So the hint there is that there is more to idolatry than just setting up an idol. Um, so what we want to do now is we want to take Paul's example here of don't be idolaters and look at um, what is idolatry and, and use that to diagnose a, a wayward heart. And then we'll see what can trigger idolatry and then how to avoid that wayward heart. So how to diagnose a wayward heart. They, they look to Aaron and they say, make us gods to go before us. Um, so like I said, in the old days, it was much easier because you had idolatry and it was this big, huge thing you set up in front of you that said, my heart is not with Yahweh. I'm, I'm worshiping this. Um, for us, it's more sophisticated. And that's not something that I'm just making up. What the New Testament has to say about idolatry is right along those lines. Ephesians 5.5 5 and Colossians 3.5. Both of those places, Paul says, idolatry Covetousness is idolatry, and, and that's where it winds up, is that our, it, it's a matter of the heart more than it is a function of these external things, because 
if their heart was right with God, they would not have set up an idol. So the problem started with their heart. Their heart wasn't right. And for us, Paul says that covetousness is idolatry. Well, what is covetousness? It's disordered desires. It's I want something more than I want anything else. It's to look at something and say, I will not be happy until I have this thing. I cannot find fulfillment in my life if this is denied me. Um, I can't be um, a, a whole person if I lack this thing. And what will I sacrifice to get that? Um, if the idol is, I want the recognition that comes with being a great company man, then I will sacrifice my family. I will sacrifice my uh, health, perhaps, by overworking and, and tie all of this up in it because I covet the recognition that comes with that job or I covet the power that comes with that job. And so what I sacrifice then is anything else. That's how to recognize what an idol is in our lives. Is it, it, it drives us to the point where everything else is eclipsed. Now, that is not to say that you can never really want something really bad. Um, you can desire things. But the way you have to check it, because we're very sophisticated, very subtle, is do you want that thing to the point where if you don't get it, life will not have meaning for you? Do, do you desire that so severely that you will sacrifice anything else to get that thing? So you can desire to do well at work. Uh, you could desire to have a, a, a perfect family. You could desire to have that particular car. I'm personally waiting for a computer to come tomorrow that was supposed to come Friday, and I'm a little agitated about it. But if it doesn't show up, if the thing falls off the face of the earth, I will not be utterly ruined. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that my heart is not turning toward that computer into an idol. Um, so it's not just strong desires. We're built to be desiring machines. We're, we're our first and foremost are our feeling. And so we do desire and we do want things. The problem is that desire can get twisted and distorted. And so Paul says it's covetousness. So think of the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, keep the Ten Commandments. And the ruler says, oh, cool, got it. Um, done that since I was a kid, and I'm good, okay. And then Jesus has pity on him and decides he wants to diagnose the man's heart. And he says, one thing you lack. And you can see the guy kind of stop, what? Sell everything and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. So he, he takes him to the point where his idol was, which was his wealth. The, the gospel writers say he was very wealthy and couldn't let go of it. Uh, so the first problem with the wayward heart is it is the heart that leads us to the idol. Um, and, and for us, our idols are not Asherah poles in the front yard. Um, our idols are much more subtle, so they can be sometimes harder to, to diagnose. So what triggers that wayward heart? What can, what can throw us into that position where we're um, wanting a, um, a job or a, a position or looks or whatever to take that, that hole in our heart? What triggers it? Well, the people said, we, we don't know what happened to Moses. They, they looked up and they said, Moses is gone. Mountain is still happening. We don't know what happened to this guy. He's, he's gone. So what they had done is for those 40 days that they were waiting, they, they had neglected anything that God would give them. They had neglected to, to spend time talking about, you know, let's remember the Exodus again. That, that was, do you remember that one plague? That was incredible. Instead of talking about what God had done, they're looking to Moses. Moses will show up and he'll tell us what to do and it'll be good. So when Moses is gone, 
their heart goes. They, they, they just sling off in another direction. They had neglected the things that God had already done and focused too much on, on uh, Moses. They focused on those externals. They never considered where their heart was. So they got bored waiting at the foot of the mountain. Um, and their treasure was not, God led us out of Egypt. We were slaves for 400 years. Do you remember what they used to do to us? Do you remember, you remember how they stopped giving us um, um, straw and made us go get it ourselves and that they wouldn't reduce the amount of bricks? That was terrible. And God delivered us from that. That wasn't where their heart was. They were counting on Moses to fill that gap. Moses will come and tell us and he'll, he'll you know, do those kinds of things. They wouldn't take it on themselves. And so the, the problem with this is where your treasure is, what's most important to you, that's where your heart is. So the people so far, what we've seen them in the, the Exodus so far is their heart is, um, we don't have any food, we don't have any water, um, the, the, um, the traveling is getting old, that kind of stuff. And that's where their heart was. And Moses was counted on to make that better. Instead of saying, our hearts are on God, and so we'll follow him. And yeah, it's hard. And Lord, you know, we're out of water. Could you do something about it? Their heart was twisted and their heart was, was deceived. So what triggers a wayward heart can be just neglect, just, just ignoring the things that God has, has given us. And we don't slide passively into holiness. We don't just sit and go, well, you know, um, if God wants me holy, I guess he'll have to do it. And then, you know, wait for it. Um, what triggers it is when we begin to neglect those things that God has given us. Um, what I've said before is we will believe what we hear the most of. Um, if, if we listen to non-believing things, if we listen to, um, to things that are opposed to God, we will eventually begin to believe those. Uh, so we need to make sure that we saturate our brains in what we should be doing. And so that leads us to the third point, which is how do you avoid that wayward heart? I don't want my heart to slide. I don't want to get wrapped up in covetousness and wind up being an idolater. I don't want to um, uh, eat, sit down to eat and drink and stand up to play. Uh, I want to be um, a person who's after God. And then Jesus promised, and then he'll give you the desires of your heart. So get your heart right, and God will give you those desires. So how do you do that? Well, the first, I think, the most important way is don't look to Moses or Paul or even Jesus himself to be here physically for you to be on, um, on the things that you should be. And, and that comes from that idea of, um, I'm a different person on Sunday morning when I'm at church than I am on Tuesday afternoon. Um, that's looking to the community to, to be this thing or, or form me into this thing that I'm just going to abandon when I'm away from the community. So we don't look to these people to be physically here for us to be okay. Um, we have to look to their example. Uh, Paul says, you know, follow me as I follow Christ. We have to remember that Jesus, while physically not here, is presently here. Um, this, this has to be your faith, not Moses's faith, not Paul's faith. This has to be your faith. It has to be a thing that you believe, that you treasure, that you desire. So how do you train your heart to love these things? I heard a, an interview this week, and the question came up about um, the growing nuns, and that's those people who say, I don't have any religious affiliation. Um, the millennial generation that's happening in a lot. And the interviewer said, well, why do you think that is? And the guy said, well, I don't have any, you know, hard statistics or anything, but my experience speaking to these people is it's not that they have met a solid argument against Christianity that just drove them off the farm. For most of them, it's just indifference. Oh, yeah, you know, Jesus, nice guy. Don't really see how it applies to me. Don't really care. 
Um, they can't see beyond that. And so that, is, that can come from a neglect of the things that God has given us to do. Um, he's given us his word. He's left his word written down for us. And if we continue to spend time in the word and listen and, and pour over it and study it, it can train our hearts because what we're aiming for is to train our hearts. Um, church, worship is very important, and it's really hard during this, this pandemic for us to do that. So thank you all for being here. And I pray that this is a kind of discipline, a thing that isn't just, well, I can check that off. But I pray for you that this is a thing that is training your heart to say, God is worth it. God is worth getting up in the morning. God is worth getting ready. God is worth sitting and listening to somebody talk for, for 40 minutes. Um, I, I pray that that is a, a training of your heart that you will hear those kind of things. And so it's not all work on our part. It's not just, I'm going to muscle up and do these things. I've got some great news for you. God is conspiring on your behalf as well. Romans 5.5, 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So the Holy Spirit is another part of that equation. He pours into our heart a love of God. And then we start with that distinct advantage. That's something that hadn't come to Israel in those days yet. Not everybody in the camp of Israel had the Holy Spirit. Um, but part of the promise of the new covenant is we have been given the Holy Spirit. We have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And so that's a great position to begin with. God has already done something to your heart to move it in the right direction. So we start with that distinct advantage. But we have to spend some time nurturing that as well. Um, can you imagine being in a relationship where the only, and the, I mean, the only time you ever spoke to the other person was when you needed something. That's not a relationship. That's a slave. That's a servant. So if you're going to have a relationship with the person, you have to spend time with them. You have to discuss with them. And so God has given us this wonderful thing that we already looked at that is very mysterious, but glorious. He wants you to pray. He tells you to pray. He expects you to pray. He wants to hear your prayers. He has given you his word. Moses came down the mountain with handwritten tablets with God's word on it. He has given us his word, which is much more than those tablets of stone. He has given us his Holy Spirit. And so this is something that, that is there to feed our desires, to correct and to train our desires. And so I want to end with a, a quote from a book that I just really love. Uh, it's called You Are What You Love. Um, so I are this book. I don't think that works. The, the idea here is um, James Smith is saying what I've been saying, which is our hearts are most important. We are first and foremost a loving machine. And so listen to what he says. He says, this is why worship is the heart of discipleship. Have you ever thought about that? Worship is not, I'm a disciple, therefore I worship. What he's saying is worship is at the heart of what a disciple is. It's at the heart of discipleship. We cannot counter the powerful, what he calls cultural liturgies. And what he means by cultural liturgies is those things that you do repeatedly, um, the TV programs you watch, the, the marketing that you see um, on TV or on the billboards or when you go to the store, um, those, those cultural liturgies, these things that just keep happening over and over again, those are there to train your heart. Um, they're designed to get you to love um, Ajax cleanser because it's the best. That's what the point is, is they want you to engage with that. So he calls those cultural liturgies. He says, we cannot counter the power of cultural liturgies with didn't didactic information poured into our intellects. Let me translate that. What he's saying is, 
you can dump doctrine on people all day and give them all the right doctrines. And if it never goes into their heart, it will never counter what the world is telling them. So many of the, the, the uh, nuns, many of the uh, millennials who have just wandered away, they probably know Christian doctrine pretty well. Um, there's a man named Bart Arman who was, uh, he, he was trained at Moody and, uh, and some other really good evangelical schools. And now he's agnostic, probably atheistic. And he writes books about how the Bible has been changed. He knows the doctrine. If you talk to him, he knows it. He, he, it went into his head. It never got into his heart. And so we can put that didactic information into people's heads and it won't change their heart. Worship is the heart of discipleship. Um, Smith goes on, we cannot recalibrate the heart from the top down through merely informational measures. The orientation of the heart happens from the bottom up through the formation of the habits of desire. Learning to love God takes practice. And so I, I think the big warning for us is while we are socially distant, while we're separated, it would be really easy to hive off and vegetate in front of a television or to hive off and spend all afternoon on Facebook and, and um, just kind of lose it. You're training your heart if you do those things. So while the challenge now for us is how do we be a church when we can't get together? Um, can we use the technology to help us do that? Can we hobble through this somehow? It begins first with you. You have to desire to know God better to, to, in a hard time when he's, it, it's more difficult than having your friends around you to hold you up. Um, you have to begin to desire that for yourself. So I want to encourage you again, engage in a, in a daily reading program. Um, it depends on how much time you have. If you're still working, if you still have to leave the house, you may have to keep it shorter or longer. Um, listen to the Bible on, on tape or cassette or, or MP3 or look how old I am on tape. Um, put in your eight-track tape player and listen to the scriptures. However it is, get the scriptures into your heart. Don't forget to pray. Um, don't neglect prayer. Prayer is a very important part of this. And what we saw here with Moses speaking to God is God actually listens. He actually hears and he actually cares. Um, the other thing is we still have small groups going. We've got men's group happening. We've got um, ladies group happening. We're meeting through Zoom. Don't neglect those things. We need each other. That's part of that, that strategy for maintaining the right desires of your heart. Um, because our hearts haven't changed since the fall. Since the day after the fall, our hearts haven't changed at all. We're exactly the same. It's just the externals have gotten more sophisticated. And so it can be harder for us to identify when our heart is wandering. So I want to encourage you all, please make the use of those things that God has given us as best as we possibly can. And so we're looking forward to that time when we get back together and when we rejoin, we can, we can hug and we can laugh and we can sing together and we can shake hands and bump elbows and all of that stuff. Um, and it becomes physical and tangible and real, but I can't reach out and touch anybody right now. And, and so it feels kind of distant. Um, let's struggle through this. Let's make it through this as best we can um, by working on those things. And so to that end, I just want to make a small announcement that um, in the latest uh, update, I said we're not going to celebrate communion until we get back together. And so we as elders kind of discussed this. There are some churches that are saying people, hey, gather the elements and now we'll celebrate communion virtually together. And, and I don't think there's anything magic about that being good or bad. 
uh, we just felt that that was something that we want to physically do together. We want to connect in that moment together and say, we are doing communion as a family. So um, it, it breaks my heart because that's one of the things that we need to feed our faith, to train our hearts, and we can't have it because we need, I think we need to do it together. I think it, it, it's better if we join together. And so, um, so no communion. Um, I may break down and change my mind on that later. We'll see. But for right now, that's, that's the plan. So folks, look at the, the people with the golden calf and recognize Paul didn't think we were that far removed from that. And so that's why in 1 Corinthians 10, he warns us about that very thing is we're not that far removed. We're, we're not so sophisticated. We could never fall for something like that. Our hearts are just exactly the same as they were from the day after the fall, um, except for by the grace of God that he has renewed our hearts. Um, we still need to be doing those things. So that's why our hearts are circumcised. Our hearts are new in the Holy Spirit. But Paul can also say in Romans, um, the renewing of your mind. The two go together. So let's work on those things together. Let's encourage each other. Um, uh, if you haven't participated in a small group via Zoom, um, let's do that. that. That can still be beneficial. It can still be helpful. So um, that's how we can support each other and, and encourage each other even in these difficult times. With that, let me close us in prayer. Lord, would you train our hearts um, as, as we sing in the hymn, tune our hearts to sing, um, tune our hearts to praise you, tune our hearts, Lord that we might not drift. Help us to not be wayward, but to fight for the faith. Um, it is easier to not believe than it is to believe. And so help us to do that. And Lord, as we do, we pray that you would be glorified and that your name would be held high. And we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.